All right, uh, let's open up in a word of prayer this morning. We can get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we have as your children to come together uh, to worship you, Lord, to uh, gather together, fellowship with one another, edify one another, Lord. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be in your word. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that it contains. And we pray, Lord, that you would just give us understanding into the truth that you have for us here. We thank you, Lord, so much for just all that you have revealed to us in your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be students of your word each and every day, not just uh, on Sundays when we come here together, but that we would be in your word every day, Lord, and that we would be using the truths that you have for us there in our lives to serve and honor you. Lord, we just pray now that you would just give us understanding as we look into this wonderful chapter of Romans. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Romans chapter 8. We've taken a couple weeks off uh, from our study, but hopefully everybody remembers kind of the flow of Romans 8. We're seeing the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this 8th chapter. The ministry of the Holy Spirit who has come into each individual that has been justified by God through faith and who has made his abode in us. The Spirit of God is alive and active within the heart of every believer. Verse 9 told us that he dwells there. He makes his home there. In fact, anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit in their heart doesn't belong to God. Now, having made his home within us, Paul went on to tell us in verse 11 that he is a guarantee of our future. That anyone who has the Holy Spirit indwelling them will one day be raised to eternal life. A new life where these mortal bodies in which we dwell today um, will be transformed to be just like the body of Christ, the glorified body that he has, and we will be in a glorified state with him for all eternity. That truth is essential for us to understand as the children of God, because that is what gives us assurance and hope as believers. Having given us the Holy Spirit, we are now guaranteed to someday be with him in glory. That is a truth that is as good as done, although in practice, it hasn't happened yet, right? I have not been glorified. You have not been glorified. But in the purpose and the plans of God, there is nothing in earth or in heaven that can stop that from happening for us. It is absolutely guaranteed, and it's what Paul has been talking about as the source of our hope. And we, we have this hope that this will someday come about. And we should live our lives in light of that hope, right? That affects the way that we live today. Now, that is down the road that that will occur, that glorification. But for today, part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right, he's indwelling us today, is that he helps our weakness, right? We still have weaknesses in, these, in this flesh in which we live. He intercedes on our behalf before God the Father, and he carries us through our trials, enabling us to persevere in the face of suffering that goes on today. When we compare the future glory that has been guaranteed to us with the suffering that we go through now, Paul says there's no comparison to it. 
That's what we've been seeing in our recent studies, starting in verse 18, where Paul told us that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering is a part of the life of the believer. It is one of the many promises that God has given us, right? The scripture tells us that suffering will come about. Not not all promises are promises that we like. There will be sufferings in your life. But the outcome of that suffering, what comes at the end of our time here on earth as a guarantee of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, puts that suffering in proper perspective for us. We don't always like that, right? Sometimes it's gut-wrenchingly hard, right? I think everybody would raise their hand to say, if you say, you don't, who doesn't like suffering? Nobody likes suffering. Nobody likes it. But when we compare it to the eternal weight of the glory that is to be revealed, the glory that is coming, that should put our suffering in a different perspective. But it goes even beyond that, because not only is the comparison of our suffering uh, to our glory something that we should consider and should, um, should give us that perspective, but it also knowing that God uses our suffering to perfect us and to mature us and to sanctify us. That should also give us that perspective as well. It's not just something that, well, we suffer through it now so that we know someday we'll be in glory and we won't care about it anymore. He uses the suffering in our lives to perfect us and to mature us today. Suffering is part of the sanctification process that we go through. That is how God works in us to perfect and mature us. It's within this context that we read verse 28 in our last study. It's a favorite verse among many believers. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things that happen to us, all things that God brings into our lives, all things that he allows us to go through, he causes them all to work together for our good. What's our good? What's good for us? It's not always what we consider to be good. What I'd consider to be good would be no pain, no loss, no suffering of any kind, right? If I'm being honest, that's what sounds good to me. Having an easy life where I don't have to go through any of that. If I had my first choice, that's how my life would be. But this verse is talking about what's good from God's perspective. This is our maturing, our sanctification. Ultimately, it's how he brings us to glorification. As parents, we understand how this works, right? Anybody that's been a parent, and even if you haven't been a parent, you still understand how this works. Kids hate going to the doctor. They hate it. They hate getting shots. They hate getting poked and prodded. They hate going through those procedures and things that we know are good for them. We understand that these are things that they have to go through, even though they don't understand why they have to go through these things. But we understand what's good for them, and we understand how it will benefit them. And God knows how our trials and our sufferings will benefit us, even when we are in the midst of them. We have no idea how this could be good for us. We can't see it. Probably all of us here, hearts have broken this last week, for the families of those kids and adults that were murdered in a Christian school down in Nashville. 
And I can't even imagine the pain and the suffering that those people must be going through today, even right now. And yet, even in the midst of a tragedy like that, when we see that on the news, we're in the middle of a study that right here says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. We know. This is what we know. Even in the midst of that kind of tragedy, for those who love the Lord, for those who have been called by Him, we're talking about believers in this verse. We know the God to whom we belong. The one who has adopted us into His family, made us fellow heirs with His only begotten Son, guaranteed to us life eternal with Him. We know that He will use even that tragedy in people's lives. I, I don't know the people down there. I don't know their hearts. I don't know them personally. But assuming that in this Christian school they are actually Christians and they do belong to Him, He will use even this tragedy to sanctify them, to bring them closer to Him. And I'm not saying that it's easy to fathom. And I can't honestly say what I would be thinking or feeling if I was in their shoes today. But I know from God's Word right here in Romans chapter 8 and other passages like James chapter 1 that God's works, He works in His children's lives even in that type of suffering. When, when Paul talks about suffering here, he's not just talking about, oh, I couldn't make rent this week or I didn't get that job promotion. He's talking about all kinds of sufferings, even that kind of suffering. He will use that in his children's lives to mature us, sanctify us. He uses that to perfect us. Now when he says that he perfects us, it's not that we continue to get better and better and better until we finally make it into glory or that we will finally reach a point in our lives where we're worthy enough to make it into heaven. That's, that's, that's the type of thinking that some may have about this, but that's not what it is. The point where we receive our glorified bodies is a distinct point in time where we will be transformed. Either while we are alive at the time of the rapture or our physical bodies have been raised from the ground and changed. The sanctification process that we have going on now doesn't mature or improve these bodies of flesh in which we still live. But it matures us spiritually and it allows our minds and our thoughts and our character to be more and more in line with the character of Christ. For believers in Jesus Christ, this is a truth, a present reality for us. God is working in our lives for our good. This is for those who have been called according to His purpose. This is His purpose of salvation. This is what He has determined to be the plan or the process of salvation. And we need to remember that our salvation is something that is accomplished by God. It's not God and the individual working together to accomplish salvation. It is God acting upon us, doing what is necessary to save us, bringing us to the point of faith, and then enabling us to have that faith and to place that faith in Him, in His work on the cross. Remember, we could do absolutely nothing to assist or earn our salvation in any way. We saw that back in chapter 4. 
of Romans, where we talked about Abraham being justified by faith, where he said in verse 4 of Romans 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. We don't earn anything. God brings us to the point of faith and allows us to believe without him working in our lives we would all, every one of us here, still be lost in our sins. Our sinful, weak bodies of flesh prevented us from bridging the chasm between our previous life lived in the flesh under the control and the domination of sin and a life lived in God's righteousness. He said in verse 3 of this chapter of Romans 8, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law could never save us because no one could keep it. We couldn't keep it. We are weak in and of ourselves because the law represented God's righteousness. We could not measure up to his righteousness. So what couldn't be accomplished through our own failed attempts to achieve righteousness on our own, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh. He provided the required sacrifice. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in us. Our salvation is a work of God in our lives. This is the way that he planned it. This is his purpose. We looked at all of that in our previous studies. But it's important for us to grasp this as we come, come to verses 29 and 30 of this chapter because these verses go into the purpose of God in detail. Here in verses 29 and 30, we have the plan of God for the life of the believer from the beginning to the end in just these two verses. And these two verses are, are all that we're going to be covering today. Now, we're going to be doing a lot of flipping to other places uh, in Scripture today, so get your fingers ready. But we'll spend our time looking at what Paul says in just these two verses today. And verse 29 starts off with one of those little words, for, which means that what comes next is tied back to what he just said. In verse 28, he had just talked about those who were called. Remember, this is that effectual call that we mentioned last time. This is the call of God to his chosen children, and we'll take a look at that um, in this passage here today. But this is the call that is always responded to positively. The effectual call is always accepted. And we go through, and as we go through these verses, we'll see this played out from beginning to end. We'll see God's to total sovereign control in this process. Now remember, we've moved into God's perspective in these verses here. We're seeing the behind-the-scenes purpose of God, the role of the Holy Spirit here. Getting some perspective on how this all works out from God's point of view, right? Because through most of the book, we've seen man's point of view. We've seen man has to believe, man is in sin, man, all these things that go through in our lives. But now as we come to chapter 8, we're starting to get some of the inner workings of God's plans. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're going to see five things here linked together inseparably that when you take them all together, they show without a doubt that as believers, as those who truly belong to God, we have nothing ever 
to worry about. We are foreknown. We are predestined. We are called. We are justified and we are glorified. These are the golden chain or the unbreakable chain of truths. And they build upon each other. And they are either all true in a person's life or none of them are true in a person's life. And so he starts off in verse 29 with the elements that were from way back in time. And we'll see as we progress through these that they go from way back in eternity past and we'll get to glorification in the future. But the elements in verse 29 are the ones that are before creation, certainly before we were ever around. And then they progress on to those elements that happen today and then the ones that are in glory. So the process of salvation here is unbreakable along this entire path. So look at how he starts verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So for, there's our word, ties back to what he just said in verse 28. Again, we're going into further explanation of the purpose of God in salvation. There are two key words to look at in this verse, foreknew and predestined. And we start by looking at the first one, foreknew. All of what comes next is based upon this condition here, having been foreknown. Its meaning in Greek is the same as what we would think of in English, knowing something beforehand, right? Having knowledge before something happens. The word is debated, though, because there are differences of opinion on what knowledge God had beforehand. What's this knowledge that... God had beforehand. And one of the arguments that you hear holds that God, in eternity past, before the world was ever created, they say that he looked down ahead in human history and he saw everything that was going to happen and he saw who was going to believe. And he simply observed that that when presented with the gospel, take me for instance, that I would believe it, and therefore based on that, he chose me to be his child. He said, oh, Matt will believe the gospel, so... I'll pick him. However, there's a major flaw in that view. Because that puts my salvation in my hands. With God merely reacting to what I would do. And the problem with that is that we're not in chapter 1 of Romans. We're in chapter 8 of Romans. That goes against everything that we've seen so far in the book of Romans. That man left on his own will have nothing to do with God, has no desire for God, no ability to follow after God. Therefore, without God being the initiator of my salvation, I would never have chosen to believe in him on my own. And really, he would simply be looking ahead to see only his work being done anyway. And this creates an endless loop to say that. That God's choice of me was based on my choice of him, but I could only choose him because he enabled me to choose him, but he only enabled me to choose him because he saw that I was going to choose. And then it's just a circular argument. But that's not what this is saying. That's not what this foreknowledge is. You see, This verse doesn't say that God foreknew something about me or that he foreknew an act that I did. He says that he foreknew me. He foreknew people, individuals, those whom he foreknew. 
He had a specific kind of knowledge of me before time began. It is this knowledge that is key here. And to understand this type of knowledge, we need to take a look at some Old Testament passages, ones that show God having knowledge of someone. What does it mean that God knew someone? And how his knowing them translated to more than just having knowledge, it really showed his, his choice, even his election of them for a specific purpose. So look back in Genesis chapter 18. We'll go way back to the beginning to start off. Genesis 18. We'll look at, I think, three passages in the Old Testament, and then we'll look at some stuff in the New Testament. But in Genesis chapter 18, in this chapter, the Lord is visiting Abraham. And this is just before his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you look down at verse 17, here the Lord is speaking. And it says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we talked back in chapter 4 of Romans about the promises that were given to Abraham. Those irrevocable, unconditional promises that God had given to him. That the blessings upon his descendants and the blessings that will carry over to all the nations as well. All these things were given to Abraham. But then look at verse 19. He says, For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now, I don't know what translation everybody has here, but some translators have taken liberty in this verse. King James Version, and I think Legacy Standard Version, have it right when they start off the verse with, I have known him, instead of I have chosen him. Because that's literally what it says. Instead of I have chosen him, it says, I have known him. But the idea behind the use of this word in this context is that Abraham was specially known or chosen by God. So the translators that put chosen in there are taking a little liberty, but the idea is the same. God is not saying here, Oh, I know something about this guy. He's talking about specifically choosing him, setting him apart for himself. To choose him for this purpose, to be the father of the nation of Israel. That's the idea behind his knowledge of Abraham. That's the type of knowledge that we're talking about. We see the same thing in Jeremiah. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 1. This verse is probably more familiar to everyone. And this is when God first approaches Jeremiah. Verse 5 of Jeremiah chapter 1. He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I, what? Knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Here you see the meaning based on all that he says here in this verse. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now does that mean that, oh, I looked ahead in time and there's this guy named Jeremiah and I like what that guy does. I'm going to use him. No. It's more than that. God knows everything about everyone before they're born. 
This isn't just saying, I could see you. He knows Jeremiah in a special way. He has chosen him for a special purposes. I consecrated you. I appointed you. I knew you. The idea behind knowing Jeremiah is that God's favor was upon him in a special way. He chose him and determined that he would be someone that God would use in service to himself. There's more to this knowledge than just knowing facts. It's a deeper, more intimate knowledge. Turn over to the book of Amos. This one might challenge you a bit more to find Amos. I'll give you a minute. But Amos chapter 3. Here in Amos 3, we're going to see his knowledge not just of an individual, but of Israel, his chosen nation. Amos 3, verse 2. He says, You only have I chosen or known among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, once again, the word for chosen is really known. And I don't know which translations have which in this verse, but some have known, some have chosen. But it's the same word as before. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Was Israel the only nation that God knew anything about? No. We all know that. Oh, Babylonians, Assyrians, I never heard of them. No. God knew every nation. The idea here again is that the knowledge that God has, it's special. It's a unique type of knowledge of knowing them. God specifically chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth to be his nation, to be set apart for himself. You see, even back in the Old Testament, the knowledge of God, him knowing this all beforehand, God knowing nations, people from eternity past, was a special, intimate kind of knowledge. Not just general knowledge, and not just facts about someone. Now we come to the New Testament, and we can take it a step further. So look at Matthew chapter 7 with me. We see the same concept, the same idea, when Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 7. And here he's talking about those who have never truly believed in him. In Matthew 7, those who claimed to believe but were deceiving themselves. If you look down at verse 23 of Matthew 7, he says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I believe when we're talking about the foreknowledge, even in the New Testament, when used of God, we're still following that same pattern, that same line of thought. This is God specially placing his favor upon someone, knowing them in a unique way. What does Jesus say to these who are deceived? I never knew you. That doesn't mean he's never heard of them before. It doesn't mean that they caught him off guard and he doesn't recognize their face. It means that he's never had that special foreknowledge of them. Over in the book of Acts, chapter 2, Peter uses this word in his Sermon on Pentecost. And after this, we'll look at a couple times he uses it in his first letter. Acts chapter 2, down in verse 23. 
Peter's talking about Christ when he says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Here he's talking about the plan of God to deliver his own son over for the sins of the world. What does he say? Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The language used here equates the plan and the foreknowledge together. They're inseparable here. This isn't just something that God knew would happen to the Son. He planned for it to happen. Over in 1 Peter, we'll get through these quickly. Try to, anyway. Over in 1 Peter, turn over there quick. Peter uses the word again. He uses it twice, actually, in the first chapter of 1 Peter. In his introduction, he starts off, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Again, here we see that some are chosen according to God's foreknowledge. This context, now, you can take this here and you can say this can be a bit more confusing. You can say, well, this is the same thing that we talked about before. He just looked down ahead and he saw that this is what would happen. That's all he's saying there. He chose them because he knew that they would believe. Okay, well, look down at verse 20. Peter uses the same word again, and it becomes clearer here. And we, Because we see the same situation that he was talking about in his sermon back in Acts chapter 2. Verse 20, he says, For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Peter uses the word again, this time in reference to Christ being foreknown. So if someone wanted to take what he said up in verses 1 and 2 and claim that Peter's use of the word foreknowledge simply meant looking ahead to see what would happen, is that what he did with Christ as well? Christ was foreknown because God just looked ahead and said, oh, I guess my son's going to do this. I didn't know that. You have some serious theological issues if you think that the events that happened to the Son were just accidents that God the Father happened to see beforehand and that He didn't plan them out. No, the foreknowledge is that special knowledge, that choice of God specifically planning out and choosing these events that will occur and the people that will be His own. Just to be thorough, we'll look at the last usage of this word in the New Testament. So flip back to Romans, but it's in Romans chapter 11. In verse 2, Romans chapter 11, Paul is going to use this word when he's talking about Israel. His chosen people, once again. Romans 11.2 says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? And we'll talk about this more when we get to the 11th chapter, but we are again seeing God's special knowledge, His foreknowledge of the nation of Israel. This is the nation that we saw back in Amos chapter 3 that was specially chosen out of all the nations of the earth. So coming back to chapter 8 of Romans, what we have is God's sovereign choice at work here. We're talking about people whom he has specifically chosen and placed his special favor upon. 
That's step one. This is where that process begins, or this chain that we're talking about begins. Having foreknown, what is the next link in the chain? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You see, he ties them all together here, and we'll see that as we go through here. That's why we call it a chain. Whom he foreknew, right? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And these will all be linked like that. There's no question that they are all dependent upon each other. There is the special, intimate knowledge that he had from before time, and having known them in that way, having placed his, his knowledge or his choice on them, he predestined them. And here we go a step further from being specially favored to God having a special plan for selecting them for something. The word means to be foreordained. When Scripture talks about predestination, it refers to specific aspects of our life in salvation. It means that God acted upon us in certain ways and meant for certain things to happen in our lives. Paul will use this word in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. We were predestined, foreordained to adoption as sons according to his purposes, according to his will. It's the same concept in that passage. We were determined beforehand from eternity past that we would be adopted as sons into the family of God. Chosen and destined for that specific purpose. So here in our passage in Romans 8, we specifically see that, that believers are predestined to become conformed to the image of God, of the image of his son, sorry. There is a specific purpose to this, to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the outcome of our salvation, why we were saved. You understand, this is where we were headed. This is where we will end up. This is, the, this is the ultimate goal of conformity that will take place when we are in glory. And there is the, there's that ultimate goal, and then there's ongoing process here as well. It takes place every day in the work of sanctification. But the process begins at the moment that we're saved, the moment we became justified through faith. It is perfected in our sanctification every Day, we are to be more and more and more like Christ. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with me. I told you we were going a lot of places. That's a trade off of only getting through two verses. We've got to look at other verses, other places. So. We've got to fill up an hour, right? So. In this chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is talking about the veil that is over the face of those who are in unbelief. He talks about the Jews being veiled in their understanding of the things of Moses. Because he says in verse 14, their minds were hardened. So in verse 15, 2 Corinthians 3.15, he says, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So their face is veiled. They can't see clearly is the idea here. They don't really understand the writings of Moses. The things of, it's the word of God that he's talking about here. What's the difference? It's what we've been talking about in Romans chapter 8. A person believes and the Holy Spirit comes upon them 
and allows them to understand. Nobody understands God's word apart from the Holy Spirit. But we see in verse 17, he, he mentions this. He says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So a person turns to the Lord and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, all those things that we've been talking about in Romans chapter 8. Take, those things take place in their lives. And one of those things being giving them understanding into the word of God. Now look at what he says in verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, so as believers, our face is unveiled because now we understand. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding into his word. So with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. As believers, we now see clearly into the things of God, the word of God. We now see clearly into what God wants of us and expects of us. And not only that, but there is a transformation taking place in us. As the Holy Spirit uses his word to change our lives into the image of the Lord. That's Jesus Christ. We are being changed day by day by the Holy Spirit, using the word of God to be more and more like Christ each and every day. That's the ongoing process of sanctification. That's not just a benefit of being saved. That's what we were saved to be. That's what we were predestined to be. More and more and more like Christ. When it comes to our character, our conduct, all of that starts today. That starts at the moment of our salvation. But it doesn't end there because it will ultimately culminate in glory. For us. Look over in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. And we've been in Philippians 3 before, but it's a good reminder of what's coming. In verse 12 of Philippians 3, he talks about pressing on to lay hold of that for which he was laid hold of by Christ. In verses 16 and 17, he talks about living by that same standard and walking according to the example of the apostles. Again, he talks about this living now, that process of sanctification that takes place in us now. But look down at verse 20. This is where I ultimately wanted you to see. And this is where we're ultimately headed. He says in verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity, and that's our word from Romans chapter 8, into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You see, today we are going through the process that shapes our character and it shapes our actions. And through it all, we are eagerly waiting for the day when what will happen? when the transformation will be completed, when even our body will be conformed to his body. This is what we were predestined to be. We will be like him in all aspects, bodily, glorified as he is glorified. Before time, we were chosen. It was divinely appointed for us to become like Jesus Christ, conformed to his image. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll be God. I'm not saying that at all. But we will have the same type of body. We will be sinless. We will be, we will be like him in character. And our minds will be like him. 
the present aspect of what of that is in our maturity as we study and take in his word and the Holy Spirit uses that to transform our very character every day of our lives. And the future aspect of it will occur when we are with him in glory. And that's what we'll see when we get to verse 30 here in a minute. I think we'll get there. But you understand, that is what we were saved to be. It's not a fringe benefit of it. It's not a cool consequence of salvation. We were chosen and predestined to be conformed to him. Now, at the end of verse 29, he takes it a little further here. He adds a little bit. He says, why we were predestined to be conformed to his image. It says, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Who's in focus here? Christ. It's Christ. The ultimate purpose of us being conformed to the image of the Son is to exalt Him, not us. He uses the term firstborn here. Some claim this to mean that Jesus wasn't deity, that it proves that oh, if He was firstborn, then He was just like us. He was born first and we came along. But that's not what this is talking about. This is a term of privilege. The one who had the rights of the inheritance, the one with the privileged position, didn't always refer to one who was physically born first. It's more of a title than a physical condition. The emphasis is on the unique, exalted position that he has. Being the firstborn does, however, imply that there are others. The firstborn had preeminence among all the others. And here we see the same with Christ. He is the preeminent one among the rest, among us, among all those who have been adopted into the family of God. The purpose of salvation, of all of God's work, is His own glory. And that's really what we're seeing here. Some people want to believe that the plan of God is focused on the salvation of men. And if we're not careful, that's the aspect of it that we get fixated on as well. But here we see that through our salvation, the very reason for us to become like him is for the Son to have preeminent position, to exalt Jesus Christ. And that's what we have been predestined to and for. So now, verse 30. We come to verse 30 and we see the continuation of God's work in salvation. He took a moment to elaborate on predestined, but we see the next step after that in this chain of salvation events in verse 30. It says, and these whom he predestined, he also called. So you see they're tied together again. Those who have been predestined have been called. That's another link in this chain. And don't miss the chain of events here. Don't miss that because that's vital here. In eternity past, before we were even born, he foreknew us. He specifically chose us. All those who were foreknown were predestined to be in the image of Christ. Again, that was all part of the plan before the foundation of the world. But now the world is in motion, right? We're here. The world's going on around us. How does the plan progress? It doesn't stop. It doesn't get put aside or forgotten or thwarted. Now we're called. Here's the next step. This is the same call that he was referencing that he used back in chapter or verse 28 of chapter 8. God causes all things to work together for good for those whom he has called. Once again, this is that effectual call, the call that always results in positive response. 
And we see that there's always a positive response because this is part of that chain, this unbreakable chain. This is when we have heard the gospel and God is drawing us to himself, to salvation. All who have been chosen by God are called by God to believe in the message of the gospel, called to respond to him in faith. There is no such thing as someone who goes through this process and never believes. Somebody might ask, well, what if someone is chosen by God but dies before they hear the gospel, right? We come up with these exceptions or what-ifs or philosophical arguments, right? Well, that's not possible because God's plan isn't thwarted. We always think we can come up with a situation that will thwart God's plan. Oh, but I bet God didn't think of this. Don't hurt yourself that way. Don't twist up your brain and try coming up with a logical argument, the philosophical conundrum that will turn this on its ear. God knows the arguments. He's thought of everything. I might not have an answer for all the arguments, but God knows all the arguments. Those who are called come. They respond. There are none who are called who don't respond. And how do I know that? Because of what Paul says next in verse 29. These whom he called, he also justified. The calling and the justifying go hand in hand. They're linked, right? The chain. Justification, declared to be righteous. We spent many lessons in chapter 3 and chapter 4 discussing this concept in detail. A person is absolved of of their guilt and declared to be righteous, credited with the righteousness of God through their faith in Jesus Christ. Turn back to chapter 3 for just a minute. It's been a while since we've been in chapter 3. Could refresh ourselves. Look down at verse 21. Verse 21, if you remember, was the start of this section on justification. Paul started talking about how sinful man can have any hope to get out of the condemnation that he's under, that he presented in the previous chapters. But verse 21 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So God's righteousness, the righteousness that we need, the, righteous, the only righteousness that counts, That has to be credited for anyone to be saved. He says in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. That's justification. Through faith in Jesus Christ, belief in the gospel, in the work that he did on our behalf on the cross. It is through faith in that work that anyone who believes is justified, is credited with God's righteousness. That is the process. That is the mechanism through which people are saved or justified. It's not the sacrifice of Christ that justifies us. That's important. I'm not saying that's not important. But that work alone didn't justify us. It's our faith in what he did that justifies us. The rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4, we saw this over and over and over again. Faith and belief, he talks about that 27 times. Trusting in the gospel, justification comes by faith in what Christ did on the cross. So here in chapters 3 and 4, we saw the mechanism. Remember, that was back in the man's perspective, right? What is our perspective on this? We have to believe. We have to believe. Now, in chapter 8, we're seeing the the behind-the-scenes working of God in this process. Yes, you believed. 
You placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, and that is how you were justified. That's what credited the righteousness of God to your account. But you believed you were justified because you were called. And you were called because you were predestined. And you were predestined because you were foreknown. The point to understand here is this. There aren't any who slip through the cracks in this. There aren't any who thwart God's plans. There aren't any who are called to salvation that have been foreknown by God who will end up just not answering that call. Based on God's predetermined plan, He calls us, we respond in faith, He declares us to be righteous. Again, the chain can't be broken. If we are called by God, then we are declared righteous by God. And ultimately, the predestined plan of being conformed to His Son will be fulfilled. And that's the last link here in verse 29. Sorry, verse 30. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What have we been talking about? What's the context of this whole argument here? The glory that awaits us, that we are eagerly anticipating. The sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. How could he say that back in verse 18? Because this chain cannot be broken. All of those who have been justified and are glorified, from foreknowledge to glory, there isn't a single one that's lost. Turn with me over to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, John's Gospel. In verse 35 of John chapter 6, Jesus is talking to the crowd, and he, and he talks about being the bread of life. He says in verse 35 of John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So here he's talking to those in the crowd who saw, they see him, they're there with him, but they're not believing. But then in verse 37, he shows the contrast to that. What about those that do believe? He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he gives me, he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Of all that the Father gives to the Son, all that God has chosen for salvation, has foreknown, has predestined, has called, has justified, they are all glorified, raised up on the last day. You see, once again, there's no question, there are no exceptions. They will all be raised up. Now, what about the opposite side? What about those He doesn't give to the Son who haven't gone through the process? Skip down to verse 44, same chapter. He says there, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Only those who have been chosen and called by the Father will ever come to the Son. So again, that whole looking down in time, who will, who will believe? Only those that God has drawn to himself. This is the complete plan of salvation. This is the inner working of God for the salvation 
process in a person's life. No one will come, no one will believe unless God has acted upon them in this unbreakable chain. Look over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We see the same process here. I think this is our last one to turn to. We'll find out. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Here Paul tells the Thessalonians, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And you see here, same process. Chosen from the beginning for salvation through sanctification and faith in the truth. That's the same elements of the chain here. Chosen to believe, chosen to be sanctified. And then he completes it in verse 14. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of this process, he called that you may gain the glory of the Lord. That's the conformity to his image and glory. That's glorification. You see, all the elements are here as well. You were chosen in the past to be called to faith, believe and be justified and wind up in glory with the Lord. It is God's choice. It is God's plan, God's action that brings us to salvation. Not only is it the case that all that God draws to the Son are saved, but none are ever lost along the way. They can't be. If someone were to be lost, then what Paul is saying here is meaningless. For Paul to say, this is the process, but not everyone has to go through it. Or some that do go through it, well, they won't end up the same way as others do. Then where's our hope? We have nothing to hope in if that is the case. No, this is part of the assurance that we talked about earlier. The assurance that we have through the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who is our guarantee that this entire process will be completed in us because God has determined that this is what will take place for all of those who believe in Him. And those whom He has called to this will all believe. This is God's plan. It's a doctrine of election, God's choice. We'll talk about that more when we get into chapter 9. Now one other thing that I want to point out here in these verses... We're almost out of time with these elements. To further illustrate the sovereignty of God here, the totality of his plans, notice the tense of all five of these words in here. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. They're all past tense, the aorist tense in the Greek, but it's the past tense. The first two happened when, right? Eternity past. That makes sense to us. They were in eternity past. He foreknew me, he predestined me way back then. The next two, called and justified. For me as a believer, right? Those are past tense as well, right? I was, I was called 40 years ago. I believed 40 years ago. I was justified when I believed. That was 40 years in the past. What about the last one? Am I glorified yet? We've been talking about waiting for the day when we're in glory, when we're glorified. 
Back up in verse 11, he said, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Verse 17 said, So that we may also be glorified with him. What was he saying? We are waiting for the day when we are in glory. When these bodies will be changed and brought into conformity with the Son. How is this past tense here in verse 30? It goes back to what we talked about in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We know that all this will work together for our good. Why? Because God called us for a purpose. It's according to His purpose. There is nothing that can ever change the purpose of God. Nothing that can ever remove us from this entire process that we've been talking about. So when we look at Him for knowing us from eternity past, and when we look at our glorification that is yet to come, you know what? It's all the same. There is no difference as far as the certainty of whether or not that will be completed. Just as what God did in the past was completed, whatever He has purposed for the future will be completed as well. It's as good as a done deal. That's an exciting thought. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how exciting of a thought is that? As a child of God, one who has come to saving faith, justified by God, is there anything that can keep me from being glorified? From living with Him for all eternity? Absolutely not. Do you see what's happening here? God is sovereignly in control of every aspect of my salvation. From choosing me to bringing me to glory, I am in His hands. He has declared it to be so. What do I have to worry about? What can happen to me in this world, in this life, that I have to be concerned about? Nothing. There's no way that I can ever lose that. There's nothing that I or anyone else can do to make me lose that salvation. Because it's not about me. And it never was about me. When things were about me, I failed miserably. That's what we all did. But God took things into His own hands, made us alive together with His Son, called us to Himself, and caused us to believe in His gospel, the work that He accomplished on the cross on our behalf. That is absolute insurance. That's how Paul could start off this chapter by saying, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. And it's how he will finish off the chapter, and we'll see in our next study. Having settled that fact, that's how we know that everything that happens to us, God uses for our good. Because we know where we are ultimately going to end up. That is guaranteed. When suffering comes, I know that it can only come out for my benefit. Maybe not immediately, but I can take comfort in knowing that God is using it to sanctify me because He has determined that I will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to You. We thank You, Lord, for this opportunity once again to be in Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, for Your plans and Your purpose and salvation. Thank You, Lord, for the work that You did on the cross for uh, our sins. We thank You, Lord, for providing us with um, the means 
by which we can save and be just be saved and be justified, Lord. And, and we thank you so much, Lord, for the process that as your children that we have gone through in this. We pray, Lord, that we would be um, active in sharing the gospel with those around us, Lord. We don't know all the inner workings. We don't know who, who, whom you have foreknown and chosen, Lord, but we know that there are so many people around us that are lost, that need to know that, that their only hope is to know the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would just give us a boldness to be sharing with them, to be presenting them with the gospel, Lord, and to, Lord, just earnestly desiring them to be saved. I thank you, Lord, for our time together. pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we go into the next hour, Lord. Help us to just have a a time that is glorifying and honoring to you, Lord, and, and pray, Lord, that this would be a day that would glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.